Humans, hello, humans, hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. How are you? I am talking to you today, um, a bit exhausted. <laughs> it has been a blur of a week. I have done five trainings, written one column, and I'm behind on starting my newsletter. <laughs> but yet here I am talking to you. No worries. Um, you may not be able to detect it in my voice, but I am super excited about today's show. That's because the big interview is with John Blake of CNN.com. Yes, that's CNN um, that you uh, at least read every day online, part of the bigger CNN that you watch on TV. And John Blake is a gracious, kind person. You will, you'll understand that from the interview who agreed to come on the show to talk about skin color in America and the pathway to get through our differences called radical integration. Stay tuned. And in my C block, I'm going to talk just very briefly about uh, something I stumbled onto uh, this week. But for our featured idealist, remember, in the A block, that's what I do. I always try to fe uh, highlight an idealist. I'm going to highlight someone who um, most of my listeners won't be happy about um, because the featured idealist today is Liz Cheney. Yes, <laughs> that Liz Cheney, the daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney, the arch conservative, armed forces hawk, um, Liz Cheney, the anti-marriage equality two-term congresswoman from Wyoming, that Liz Cheney is our idealist. But remember, you know, what or who an idealist is. Someone working for positive change in the world. And as I'm sure all of you are aware, Liz Cheney just lost her leadership role in the House of Representatives for the Republican side because of her vote to impeach former President Trump following the January 6th, 6th insurrection and because of her refusal to accept the big lie that President Joe's election was stolen and illegitimate. By doing that, Cheney is standing up for what's right and working to prevent horrific change and damage to our democracy. For doing all of that, she is paying a huge political price. Now, say what you will about her, and I'm going to give you a little, some tidbits about her in a second. Say what you will about her, and say what you will about what you think her motives are. I'm just going to take some stuff at face value. Um, and what she's doing is about as idealistic as one can be. So, yes, as it turns out, liberals and progressives aren't the only ones who constitute idealists. We'll get to Cheney's idealistic stand in a moment, but first, some basic background. It turns out that Liz Cheney has Midwestern roots. I bet you didn't know that. She was born in Madison, Wisconsin in 1966 when both her parents uh, were students at the University of Wisconsin, Madison. Eventually, the family moved to Wyoming, um, where Dick Cheney was elected to Congress, and then from there, the family moved back to the East Coast, where Liz attended uh, high school in Virginia. And did you know she was a cheerleader 
in high school. I bet you wouldn't have thought that. After high school, Liz Cheney attended and graduated from Colorado College. She later attended and graduated from the University of Chicago Law School. Some pretty good, um, some pretty good uh, uh, roots for that. With her father in the White House as vice president, Cheney held deputy assistant secretary of state positions. Um, and at one point, though, she worked for the USAID, um, United States Aid for International Development, and was posted to U.S. embassies in Budapest and Warsaw. And I tell you that because working for USAID, um, in my view, reflects some kind of a compassion level that maybe we were not aware of. Notwithstanding her conservative stances, Cheney has had some surprising political connections. For example, she was a co-chair for Fred Thompson's presidential bid, and she worked on Mitt Romney's presidential campaign as a senior foreign policy advisor. And one last notable thing that most don't, most don't know about Liz Cheney, she's married and has five children. And I think that you should, to at least some extent, view what she's doing right now against the backdrop of her being a mom to five kids. But what, of course, has me talking about Liz Cheney is her courageous and brave stand against former President Trump and the big lie. As I said at the outset, she was one of just 10 Republicans to vote to impeach former President Trump because of his role in inciting the January 6th insurrection. She then repeatedly went on the record debunking the big lie. This courage, this truth-telling, has gained Cheney the respect of many. For example, in a podcast that came out on Thursday, Sally Yates, another woman of extreme courage who stood up to Trump, told David Axelrod, quote, I never thought I'd be saying, yay, go Liz Cheney, but yeah, I am. Unquote. Yates noted that she and others are cheering Cheney on just for telling the truth. And that's the reality as we think about this. Liz Cheney is getting accolades because she's willing to just simply acknowledge the facts and tell the truth. I mean, it is incredible that a, a part of our country has come to this, that telling the truth will destroy your political career. Um, but that's exactly what this is all about, speaking truth to power. And that is exactly what idealists do. Now, in her speech on Tuesday night, in anticipation of her being voted out as the Republican conference chair on Wednesday morning, Cheney repeatedly talked about adhering to the rule of law of upholding our democratic principles. That rule of law, I will remind you, is neither a democratic rule of law or Republican or a Bernie or whatever other version you want to say. It is one rule of law. And the democratic principles are not something that you get to turn on and off depending on whether you are in power or not. Liz Cheney recognized that. And she has said that Trump's role in instigating the January 6th insurrection was, quote, the greatest betrayal of the oath of office by any president, unquote, in the history 
of our country. Now that is real truth spoken to power. Following her uh, removal as conference chair, um, on, uh, on Thursday we heard Cheney say, quote, I will do everything I can to ensure that he, referring to Trump, never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office, unquote. She then added, quote, we cannot let the former president drag us backward and make us complicit in his efforts to unravel our democracy, unquote. I sure as heck hope that Liz Cheney succeeds in keeping Donald Trump out of the White House because I shudder to think what America will look like if she and the rest of us fail. Think about that. So yes, I am going to highlight Liz Cheney as this week's featured idealist. I am going to talk about her courage and bravery. And I am in a bit of awe given all the things that she is going through right now and her steadfastness. I mean, yesterday, um, Thursday, she went on, I'm on, we're taping this, remember, uh, she went on, she went on Fox News and railed at Fox News for contributing to the big lie. I mean, I think that we're going to see more things like this from Liz Cheney, and maybe she's going to end up leading. I can't imagine that she would lead a third party, but I can imagine that she will shame the heck out of current Republican leaders. And who knows what will happen? Who knows? You just never do know. Okay, well, that's it for the A Block. Liz Cheney, our featured idealist. We're going to now move on after our break. Uh, speak with John Blake from CNN.com. I am so excited about that. You will thoroughly enjoy this man. I guarantee it. He is, he is just such a kind and compassionate human, and it will come through in the interview. I know you will pick up on that. All right, you're listening to me, Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Follow me on Twitter at, at Ellie, at Ellie Krug. Uh, sign up for my newsletter at elliekrug.com. We'll be back in a second. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio and AM 950. I know you may still be in shock with me talking about Liz Cheney, but you know why I did it. And now for the big interview, words cannot even begin to express how excited I am to have today's guest. Let me introduce John Blake. He is an award-winning journalist with honors from the Associated Press, the Society of Professional Journalists of the American Academy of Religion, the National Association of Black Journalists, and GLAD, the LGBTQ organization. He is the author of the 2005 book, Children of the Movement, a final, and, which was a finalist for several awards. He presently writes for CNN.com, the online site for CNN. John Blake, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. I am thrilled to have you here. How are you today? 
Oh, good. Thank you for the invitation. So, John, I just want to make sure I let the audience know how you and I came uh, in contact. I saw an article that you did last month, which I'm going to reference in a second here. And I, you know, and I've done this a number of times with people, you know, who I find that have written or maybe spoken about something. I reach out to them, you know, via, you know, their website that says, you know, here's your email, contact me, whatever. John, Rarely does anybody ever respond. And not only did you respond to me, but you did it within less than an hour of me asking to contact you and have you contact me and with the suggestion of being on my show. So I just want to thank you for that. And it's extremely classy on your part. It just so impressed me. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So John, uh, we've got you on the show here because... You, uh, you wrote an article last month. It appeared on CNN.com on April 18th. The article was titled, George Floyd's Death Did Not Spark a Racial Reckoning. Right. And of course, we're in Minneapolis here. That, you know, at that time, the trial was going on. The title uh, caught my eye, but what really caught my eye was this, what you wrote. Quote, As the trial of the police officer accused of killing Floyd nears its end, I've reached an uncomfortable conclusion. Floyd's death did not lead to a racial reckoning. And those who care about racial justice should welcome the absence of one, or at least the version I'm talking about. The racial reckoning phrase has become a rhetorical decoy a way to avoid facing the deepest problems about race in America instead of a call to confront them, unquote. Talk to us about this, John. What did you mean by that? And, and what is, what is, what do we need to do to really have a reckoning? Well, when I wrote that, I almost felt like it was a blasphemous because everyone says we've had a racial reckoning. And, And as I point out in the piece, I've said it myself in earlier stories, but I didn't really examine what that that phrase actually meant. And what I meant by that is, to me, I think um, there's a, I asked myself, what has fundamentally changed for a black person since George Floyd death, since George Floyd died? And when I look at the headlines, when I look at the news, when I see yet another shooting, uh, yet another black or brown person killed, I begin to think like, I don't know if there's been like fundamental change. And to me, that's what I try to get at when I talk about racial reckoning. I think sometimes when some white Americans use the term racial reckoning, it means something different to people Mm -hmm. of color. I think for some white Americans, racial reckoning means, wow, I've suddenly realized how difficult it is for black and brown people. Racism is really bad. You know, they get moved. They feel these emotions. But these are emotions and they tend to fade. And then when the news cycle moves on, life goes back to normal. Now, I think when people of color talk more about racial reckoning and other white allies, they mean something different. A racial reckoning should be a fundamental transformation. And that hasn't happened. We need it's it's about changing the direction, about changing the way the country is. Right. You know, and I, you know, I talk, I mean, even last week I spoke about, you know, things falling off the plate. You know, how long will it be before this falls off the plate for white color right. people? Um, by the way, I think I uh, told you yes. in an email, yeah. I refer to white people as white color because most white people don't believe that white's a, a, actually a skin color. Um, <clears throat> and so, um, well, 
and what you go on to, to do in, in your piece are two things. One, you talk about your personal history, um, right. which I'd like to get into next. But then, then you talk about what you call um, radical integration. And right. that is where I want to spend a lot of time here. But, but if you could, share us about how your perspective here is informed by your personal experience. You grew up in Baltimore, right? Yeah, I grew up in a very specific part of Baltimore that a lot of people know about. It's in West Baltimore. And it's known for primarily two things. One is there's an HBO series yep. called The Wire that used to air years ago. Yep. Well, The Wire was literally filmed on my doorstep. That's where I grew up. I mean, it was kind of weird to see that that series and see my junior high school, to see the streets that I walked on. So I grew up there, but that's also the place uh, where the Freddie Gray riot erupted in 2015. Freddie Gray was a young yep. black man who died in police custody, and it sparked a huge riot. Describing my experience with what uh, the term I use called ra radical integration, I grew up in West Baltimore. So it's a it's an area that's become the symbol of black anger, you know, the attractable nature yep. of racism you think of West Baltimore. Yep. And it's a place where I grew up, I, I saw no white people. And there was tremendous hostility toward white people. Um, my high, my entire public school career from Head Start to the twelfth grade, I only saw one white student. <laughs> and when we when we saw her, she was like it was like a sighting in a Bigfoot. You couldn't believe. It. <laughs> so it was okay. incredibly racially segregated, tremendous um, anger at white people. But what was kind of um, inconvenient for me is that my mother is white, and so I grew up biracial in this environment, and I didn't meet her or any of the white members of my family till I turned seventeen. And so what happened is, and this gets back to radical integration, I grew up with this tremendous hostility toward white people, even though half of my family is white. And when I met my mom and I began to get to know her family, and these were very, I got to be straight up, these were yeah. frankly racist people, you know. Um, but the whole experience of getting to know the other, you know, you talk about the other. I do. Getting to know the other in a human relationship changed me in ways that were more profound. And this people should be changed in the process. Both people should be challenged to grow. It's not just black people making white people feel good, like, hey, here's my black friend. So that was the experience I had yeah. with my white family that really changed me in ways that uh, that I'm still digesting. Well, you know, John, it's it's so important that you say that and you describe it that way because, you know, the studies are that if, you know, people of different skin colors interact for like just five minutes, all that does is reinforce the otherness. You know, it reinforces stereotypes. And so you really have to spend time with people to hear their stories, to get to know them. I, I talk about that, you know, to understand that they too are going to trying to survive the human condition, just like you are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what happens, like, you know, you mentioned this study, we're just being exposed to people who are different can reinforce stereotypes. And, I, and I've read studies like that before. So what I say when I talk about radical integration, it helps to be part of a community, where people were challenged to build those type of relationships. And I think the thing that's important about being a community, when you're part of the community, it's not five minutes or a week. These are people you have ongoing right. relationships with. And so your challenge over a period of time to really connect with people 
and you and you, and you know and you can't bail out of it. That that is part of being part of that community. That comes with the territory, and I've been a part of such communities, and it's made a huge difference with me. I mean, not only with my family, but I've been part of other communities like that. And I think you need something like that. It can't just be, you know, a week or two or just waving at somebody as you drive by. Right. Okay, well, John, we're going to need to take a break, okay? And when we come back, I want to talk more about this radical integration and ask um, what made you an idealist, okay? All right. All right. Listeners, we've been speaking with um, award-winning journalist and author John Blake from CNN.com. When we come back from our break, we'll pick it up and we'll talk about radical integration. Thanks. We'll be back in a second. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Before we took our break, we had started the big interview with John Blake, an award-winning journalist and author. And John is with uh, CNN.com, and we had started the interview talking about an article he wrote um, in, uh, that came out in April, uh, April 18th, uh, titled George Floyd's Death Did Not Spark a, a Racial Reckoning, and we've been getting on to the subject of radical integration. Now, John... Um, we had, uh, before we took our break, we were, were starting down the road of talking about radical integration. And can, you know, you, you, you shared about your family. You come from a, you're biracial, I like to say blended. Um, and you have, you know, a white, uh, a white uh, color and a black parent. Tell me, apart from your family, what else helped you get to this concept of understanding the power of getting to know and, co- and, and not coexist, but to actually be in the lives of other people who are otherwise other? Um, for me, um, in addition to my family, um, I, I happened to join a church that was really big about being an interracial church. And it was, see, they're kind of two different types of interracial churches. There's the interracial church where you have, somebody calls it hues and pews, where you have black and brown people in the pews with white people. But the people who are in charge are white people. They control the power. Mm. They control what kind of songs yep. you sing, how everything goes. Everything is adjusted to the norms of white culture. And then, but that wasn't the type of interracial church I went to. I went to an interracial church in Atlanta where there were tremendous power struggles because black and brown people wanted to see a brown Jesus, you know, <laughs> represented in the sanctuary. They wanted to sing certain type of songs. They ha- wanted to have certain type of worship experiences that were more centered around black culture. And they were power struggles, but people adjusted, they gave, they yielded, we argued, and we grew. Mm. That's the type of radical integration that I experienced in that community. But I think other people experience it in different places. It could be in a recovery group, right. it could be in a sports team. I don't think it's, it has to be centered on a spiritual community. Right. And, and, and the, the, going back to your article, the thing that I took great interest in was, you know, you writing that, you know, white-colored people, many of them— want, you know, they want to understand the injustice. They want to, they want to be better. Okay. In terms of all humans based on uh, all the hues of of skin color, but they're not willing to do the work. Yeah, that's a huge problem. And I, I, and and this is something that other people have talked about. Um, When it, 
it's one thing to put a Black Lives Matter sign on your line. Yep. But it's another, what do you do when black and brown people move into your neighborhood? What do you do when the public school you're sending your white daughter or son to starts to change and becomes more black and brown? And so a lot of times when those moments come in the past, some white people like, I'm willing to walk it, but I, I mean, I'm willing to talk about these things, but I'm not going to lift those principles out in my life. And so they will move, they will go to all-white communities, all-white schools. So that, that's been a problem for the civil rights community forever. We saw that in busing. You know, what right. I talk about is, you know, in the 60s, there were all these laws that were passed. But when we really tried to integrate public schools in the late 60s and early 70s, in the North, you know, in, in a lot of places like that, the simple fact that a lot of white people did not want their children to go to school with black and brown people. And so you need to get, that's what I said in the story, that you have to be willing to share power and resources to have radical integration. And when it comes to that, a lot of white Americans, including a lot of progressive white Americans, are not willing to do that. So how do we get there? I mean, you know, um, you've talked here about, you know, um, interracial churches and recovery groups. and, And there is, you know, this, you know, radical integration, my phrase, you know, human familiarity occurring. It's happening. But. John, we have to do this on a national scale. I mean, we have to, I'm in Minnesota. You know, there are huge differences between the Twin Cities and greater Minnesota. Greater Minnesota, right. largely uh, white, but, but changing because we've got Somalis that are moving into greater Minnesota. We've got uh, uh, Latinx folks that are moving there. Um, right. but, but, we, but we've got to get the white color people you know, sitting in rural areas with the same experience that you had in, in, in uh, Baltimore, where all they know are just, you know, white color people. How do we get them on board and, and understanding and, 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 you know, familiar with people who are other based on skin color? Because they're, it's, they're the ones sending representatives to Washington that are blocking everything. How do we do that? Well, that's a, that's the huge question, right? Everyone's asking. I mean, like, if you look at every presidential election, and you look at the the, the the votes that, like, the Democratic Party, that they're not able to get these voters who you would think would be aligned with them, given their economic concerns, but they don't. Right. Um, I, I tell you, I can tell you what worked in my family, and 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 so I think there are others who can talk about, you know, the kind of policy answer to your questions, like how do you get more you know, rural white voters to not be motivated by racial resentment. But I think what I could do is talk more from my personal experience with my, my white family. What helped me, as I found out, is that, one, calling out my, my, calling my family racist, like calling the people in my family who didn't want anything to do with me for the first 17 years of my life because I was black, I found that directly confronting them by saying, you're a racist, did not help. <laughs> right. You know, I, I think trying to shame white people nope. sometimes into change, into change in a personal relationship just makes them defensive yep. and resentful, and they don't really change. So one of the things that really helped me with, like, a relative of mine, for example, is instead of coming out there with my guns blazing and, and waving my, you know, anti-racist book that I just read, I, I, I just learned to listen to her. I just listened to her stories, and I showed mm-hmm. her over a period of time that I respected her, that I cared for her, and that's when I began to tell more things that were on my mind, and I begin to share things, and that's when she began to change. People don't change unless they know that you respect and care for them. 
And so when I showed the white members of my family that I respected them, that I cared for them, then they were willing to listen to me. And now this white, I have a white relative who's very conservative, voted for Trump. Now she wants to talk about Black Lives Matter. Now she wants to talk about race. And, and I think part of it's because I didn't come out here and just say, you're just evil, you're racist, you're nothing more than that. And I think if we take, I think in a personal relationships, I think if we do some of that with some of the people we consider the other, you know, I think that helps. That's been my experience. I know that, like I said, I don't want to confine it to this. There's justice and there's policy. But as far as reaching people like that, I think trying to shame them and just simply saying you're all racist is a poor strategy. I agree with that 100%. Um, the problem is finding the people that can teach that, right? Yeah. Finding the people that can go into communities, that can go into settings, and set the right tonality for you know, getting people comfortable with the idea of being uncomfortable at first. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and the reason that we haven't, you know, white, you know, the reason that white people, white colored people haven't done the work is because they don't want to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, but how do you grow? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I just, I know. I mean, but I know. And, and, you know, and the thing is, now, you know, I mean, from the, uh, our communications, I mean, this is the work that I do. I mean, I'm going out trying to change the way people interact with other in our society, not just transgender people like me, but, you know, based on skin color or visible disabilities or all kinds of things that we make people other about. And I, and I can, John, I can see it. I can literally see the light bulbs going on. When you approach it from a position of compassion, this is really what you're talking about when you say, yes. you know, respect. And when you approach it from a position of dignity, okay? Yes. If, yes. You, if you approach it from a soapbox, you know what? It's, no. you're, we're just not going to get there, right? Yes. No, I, I, I totally agree. And um, it's so easy to do it from the soapbox. Like in the media, we get a lot more mileage after from writing stories that kind of speak from the soapbox where um, so many stories do well in media because they're driven by outrage. Right. Outrage. Right. And you believe what these folks did, but I think we have to do more stories that get past that. And they're more difficult to tell those stories. It's, it's more difficult to make goodness interesting as opposed to comedy. Oh my God. It takes more. <laughs> it's just more difficult, but it's worth it. Yeah. But you're so on the money. You are so, on, I mean, one of your competitors, you know, has built its whole industry on oh, yeah. anti-goodness, okay? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, um, all right, well, listen, I'm, I'm watching my time. Now I want to ask you, okay? And I have a sense, can I, but, can I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. May I add one little thought to what you were saying? Sure. Because I'm really thinking about you were saying, you know, your, your work and how do you convince people when they're uncomfortable to make these changes. I think one of the things we have to give, show people is that, it benefits you. It helps you. You mm -hmm. will be happier. You will be more the country will be better if we can get past this. I, somebody said that one of the superpowers of this country is our diversity, all these different ideas, yep. all these different people. Um, I just think if, if you show people that you, it's in your interest, forget the morality of, like, I'm helping somebody. You are helping yourself by doing this. The white members of my family are happier, I believe, what I've seen being the way they are now as opposed to 
the way they were when he wanted nothing to do with me. Well, you know, and I will tell you something. Uh, my listeners have heard this because I've talked about it. There's a poet writer named Tony Hoagland. He is passed on. But he, in 2018, he wrote a piece called The Cure for Racism is Cancer. And he wrote about how his experience of getting cancer and then witnessing others radically changed them because they had to come and rely on other to care for them. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and there's your self-interest, okay? But the, the other reality, John, is we know this. America is becoming yeah. all of these different shades of right. humans, and right, so, right. you know, and, that, and when I have, do a training that's like mandatory, you know, I always, you know, because you can see the people with the crossed arms and why am I have to be here and all that. And I ask them one question. Do you have a kid or a grandkid? And, you know, hands raised. And I'm like, well, it's important you're here for the next two hours because what I'm going to teach you or try to teach you, your kids or grandkids already know it. And yeah. it's important to them. And when they bring home other to meet you how do you want to react so all right now listen um in our time left okay i just want to ask you what made you an idealist because john blake you are a supreme idealist maybe you've never thought of yourself that way and excuse me for labeling you okay but you are it's so clear to me you want to make the world a better place how did you what made you that way? Um, when I see the changes in my family, I know that if we can heal, so can others. Um, I, I'm amazed at the kind of relationship I have with my mother and other people in my family. I never would have expected that when I grew up with this young kid in Baltimore. <laughs> Just tremendous anger I had, not knowing where, who my mother was. I didn't even know what she looked like. You know, until I was 17. I didn't know anything about her or her family. I just knew they didn't like black people. And for us to be able to say we love each other, for us to have this relationship, that makes me an idealist. But hmm. then when I look beyond me, I mean, we can't forget. I mean, it wasn't that long ago we elected the nation's first black president. I know. I mean, I mean, there are tremendous changes. Look, look, look at your, your own life. In another time, there would have been no acceptance. No, I mean... Right. People are waking up to people, all sorts of people who are the other now. So I look at those things and what happened in my life and what's happening in the country so I won't become cynical because cynical people don't change things. Cynical people do not change things. They just destroy them. Yeah. Well, John Blake, <clears throat> I am so incredibly thankful for you being on my very tiny radio show. Um, it's just such a pleasure to talk with you. And um, I, you, you know, you just, you're rocking it. And please continue with your wonderful writing. I, you know, I know I don't need to tell you that. But um, just, you know, just know that I'm here and you got a huge fan, okay, following your well, work. I'm a fan of you. Oh, well. Thank you. And thank you for your life and your witness to what you've done. Oh, Thanks, John. 
Okay, well, listen, listeners, um, I could go on for like two hours talking to John Blake, but um, we've got only so much time. Um, when we come back from our break, with whatever little time I've got left, I'll give you my C block, okay? We've been, li- we've been speaking to John Blake. I'm grateful for him to be here. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM950. We'll be back in a second. We're back on LE 2.0 Radio with Mazzy Star and Swoony Music. And we did not plan that, but if you see me right now, you can tell I am swooning (laughs) for John Blake because what a class act, really. And to give his time to this very small radio host, Ellie Krug, you know, that no no one knows... um, It was great, but you know what? It's emboldened me. We're going to see who else we can get on this show. So just stay tuned, all right? Okay, my C block, I I don't have much time. I want to talk about something um, that I got engaged in uh, this week. So, and I'm not going to identify uh, specifically the community, um, but there is a town in western Minnesota, that's all I'm going to tell you, wrestling with the issue of how to treat um, a transgender boy in school. And I was on a call uh, yesterday with um, a school superintendent and, and a school principal and some social workers to talk about um, bath- one of the most basic things about bathroom access. And, um, you know, whether, you know, I mean... I mean, the, the advocacy here is to let uh, the transgender boy use the boy's bathroom without any fanfare, without doing anything special. Just let him go in and use the bathroom. Do his stuff and go back, okay? There's stalls and all that stuff with doors. Nobody has to get involved with anything. But the community um, is having some problems over this. And... Um, you know, and I got the opportunity to speak just with the superintendent and with the principal. And, and you know, uh, my approach, of course, and you just heard uh, with, um, when I spoke with John Blake, my approach is not to san- uh, um, soapbox things. I don't. I actually try and approach them always as a human, trying to understand that everyone else is surviving the human condition. And uh, after the social workers got off and, and, and the transgender boy and his mother, the superintendent asked to talk to me alone. It was just a, he and I and the principal. And it was clear to me, I mean, the, it was clear to me that both of them have good hearts. Both of them want to do what is best for the transgender boy. But they are feeling intense community pressure. You know, and I talked with them about compassion. I, I did. I said, this is a word that you need to use at the upcoming school board meeting where apparently there will be angry parents about how dare you allow a transgender boy to use 
the boy's bathroom. And that it should be compassion directed first and foremost to the transgender boy. You know, and I said to them, I said, you know, look, you know, um, we, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about, you know, people are uncomfortable and all of that type of stuff. I said, but guess what? I mean, this is what we were saying about white, about black people using white color person's restrooms 60 years ago. And then before that, it was about Jews. And before that, it was about using the Irish or the Italians. And somehow we've gotten all past that. I, you know, but back to the good hearts. I mean, I, I, you know, I can appreciate the situation <clears throat> that the principal and the superintendent are in. But I reminded them the default is always to protect the transgender student. That is the default, the guiding principle. There's not like, you know, 50% here. It always has to be paramount. And so this is the work that I do, listeners. Not, and I'm not telling you that for accolades or um, grandiosity, but this is the work I do behind the scenes, speaking human to human to people, letting them know I can appreciate how difficult things are but yet still pushing with a smile on my face and every once in a while a little bit of a joke about myself, but still pushing. That's the way my idealism works. So stay tuned about this. I may be back to you about uh, this story. I don't think my role um, in that situation has ended. And um, remember I said with John Blake, 98% of us, we all have good empathetic hearts. We do. And it's my hope that those empathetic hearts prevail in that situation. Okay. My producer, Brett Johnson, has been working double, triple, quadruple overtime today because of some production issues. And Brett, you know how much I adore you. So thank you so very much for all your help today. Listeners, thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this show. I mean, this is one of those shows I'm like, on top of the world. I get to drive away from here like, oh, yeah, I like doing this radio show. Yeah, it's six or seven hours a week, but whatever. You know, and, and listen, listeners, you heard John Blake talk about it. Transformative. That's what can happen. We just have to try and see the world. You can do that. Go out and change it. I'll be back next week. <laughs>